Hey, it's Bill Simmons. You're about to listen to the Dave Chang Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Dave is in New York right now doing Dave Chang things. I just want to tell you about TheRinger.com. Check out all of our basketball coverage. Check out all of our podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network, including my podcast, the Bill Simmons Podcast, the Ringer NBA Show, the Ringer NFL Show, everything we have going. House of Carbs with Joe House. Whole bunch of fun stuff. There's something for everybody. Subscribe to all of our podcasts through the Ringer Podcast Network, which you can find on the ringer.com. Coming up, we're going to call Dave and we're going to set up the pre-opening diaries, episode two. Here we go. Hey, this is Dave Chang. You're listening to The Dave Chang Show on the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. I'm in New York. Bill's in L.A., and we're going to give you the intro to The Pre-Opening Diaries, Volume 2. Yeah, so we taped, if you listen to The Pre-Opening Diaries, Episode 1, we taped the first three before you opened your new restaurant in L.A., Major Domo, and then we taped the last two after. So we just wanted to give some context to Episode 2, which basically goes into when you're trying to put together a staff and a restaurant, you need to do some testing of all the people you're doing, some dishes, all that stuff. How tense of a time is this looking back from a scale of one to 10 for you? Incredibly stressful. I just got my uh, biannual physical and they said my cortisol levels are through the roof still. So that's good. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, one day we'll talk about the stress involved in it all. But right around this time, uh, you know, every day was a little bit more and more stressful. And the best way I can express the feeling, it's like getting your college acceptance results and like asking a girl out on a date, maybe like medical results too simultaneously. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. And I think it was cathartic to talk to you about it at that time. You know, volume one was a little bit about like how we got to that point. And we're going to go into this episode of the pre-opening diaries, talking a little bit about the menu, the construction of the team, you know, kitchen design. And also I curse way too much a little bit about delivery. And I want to go through a podcast without dropping the F-bomb. I don't know if that's going to be possible. Well, that's just what you do, unfortunately. It's just <laughs> part, part of the Dave Chang Show experience. So yeah, we're going to run this one and then volume three, either next week or the week after. We have a whole list of fun guests that you're going to have too. So we might break away from these pre-opening diaries and have at least one podcast in between just to prepare Absolutely. the audience. And then uh, when do you get back to the West Coast? I'm back on Sunday. Are you going to stop by Washington and throw your own feces at the Wizards, or are you just going to come right to L.A.? You know what? I'm just glad that Toronto laid the goose egg yesterday instead of the Washington Wizards. <laughs> Joe House said he was happy when the Wizards lost that he was able to finally be put out of his misery. Did you feel that way, too? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was the most illuminating Joe House has ever been on any podcast talking about the demise of the Washington, D.C. sports teams. And I've already blocked out in my mind the person that he was saying that we were going to possibly trade for. Did he say that we're going to get Carmelo? I mean, that would be amazing. That's a reality show. We were talking about Hassan Whiteside, which would be probably just oh. as uh, traumatic. But yeah, it's, it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the polar opposite of Philadelphia and Boston. Like, I don't even understand the Celtics. Brad Stevens is the greatest coach maybe ever. And you just have the Randy Whitman, Scott Brooks type coaches every year. Yeah. Actually, I think that's a future podcast about leadership strategies as a coach 
and like how you can be a chef and like learn how that works for the best sports teams. I think there's a lot to be learned for the culinary world. If Scott Brooks was a chef, would he just make the same mistake with the filet mignon every single time? (laughs) You know what? The biggest thing that you guys have been talking about, I think uh, that I've been repeating on your pod is like what to do with Russell Westbrook, the dilemma. And I think that's a lot of people in the culinary world as a chef or restaurateur can understand. It's like, if you're too good, you may not be able to like get to the next level unless you like figure it out. But that's the, that's the hardest dilemma. And you know, I don't know what to do there. Wait a second. This is really interesting. So if Russell Westbrook was a chef, how would the staff interact with him? And would he just be, exactly. he would never delegate and he would just have to do everything. But when he wasn't there, the kitchen would fall apart. I think as a chef, he's the kind of person that is so prodigiously talented and is really a great teammate. But because he's so great talent-wise and he's such a good teammate that he becomes a bad teammate, right? Yeah. Because nothing else can grow because of that. And it's essentially, to me, a moral of the story of what worked for you in the past won't work for you moving forward. And that's a really hard place to be. No one knows what to do. And I know I've probably been in that situation before, and I know that other chefs have as well. And to be able to sort of unravel that, that's going to be really difficult. And like we talked about on the last podcast about making menus or making a dish that no one else can make. I think that's really hard, but you want to be able to be the best teammate possible and still be yourself. And I don't know how that happens. Did you ever have a moment where you shot 43 shots in a playoff game, but it was the chef version of this? <laughs> I'm sure I have. I've probably made every mistake under the sun. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, listen, I'm trying to empathize with Russell Westbrook. It's a weird place to be, to feel bad for the guy, but I'm sort of weirdly feeling bad for Westbrook. Out of all the NBA players, who would be the best chef, like their style of game? I feel like Ben Simmons has a chance to be an awesome chef and he would get the whole staff involved. I'm going to say anyone on the San Antonio Spurs Oh, the infrastructure. I like it. The infrastructure. Popovich would have been an amazing chef. He loves wine, so maybe there's a possibility. Yeah, he'd spend way too much on the sommelier. (laughs) Unfortunately, Kawhi would be this awesome chef who then would disappear for five months because he cut his finger and you keep waiting for him to come back and he just, now all of a sudden he's not even at the restaurant. He's in another city and you don't know what the hell's going on. I I feel like we could do all these sports metaphors analogies for a solid year and never get tired of it. Yeah. Last thing, you had a big crawfish day in D.C.? What happened there? Yeah, we have a new chef, Tay Strain. A local boy comes home, and he loves the Chesapeake area. He loves shellfish, crawfish boils. And we did our launch of our patio in D.C., and obviously we extended our invitation to Joe House, and he no-showed. So, you know, I'm still going to love you, Joe House, but I'm, I'm sad that you didn't join us to eat. Delicious crawfish. Okay. Yeah. Do you get any good feedback for episode one? What do we have to change? What do we have to get better at? I think for feedback, personally, I, I didn't even speak to my dad, but I imagine this is what my dad would have said, and you guys can understand why I'm such a neurotic individual. He probably would have said, that's great. You hit number two on iTunes, but you're not number one. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at this point, I'm willing to throw everything out to, to get to the top ranking. So wow. who knows? Who knows what could happen? Okay. Coming up right now. Episode two of the pre-opening diaries, which was taped right after Christmas, about a month before Major Domo opened, right? When did Major Domo open? Like mid-January, late January? Yeah. I don't, I'm not even sure. I've already blocked it out. <laughs> All right. Here it comes right now. Episode two.
So we've been looking at LA. I've been looking at LA for a number of years. And we had, um, in 2009, almost signed to be part of a prestigious hotel in a cool location. And it was going to be a house, actually, off Selma. I can say that much. And it was going to be for like 18 people. And it was going to be just, the, I thought it was going to be the coolest thing I'd ever been part 18 of. 18 people total? Yeah, it was going to be very intimate. Oh, I like those restaurants. But it was going to be set up like a house and it was going to be super fucking cool. Anyway, it fell through at the 11th hour and we basically decided to take some of those ideas and move it all the way to Australia, which is sort of the main reason we opened up in Sydney, Australia at the time in 2010. And then we had a bunch of projects and then we've been lucky enough where developers and once you get to a certain size like everyone gives you not everyone you get these offers and you look at locations and LA has always been something that has been near and dear to me particularly because I love career town here so much and I have so many of my friends and I've dated some of my ex-girlfriends that lived out here so I've I've always loved LA but I wanted oh, that to sounded focus way more exciting than you yeah well, uh, yeah all right. yeah man <laughs> I was a king of the I was a king oh. of the long long distance relationship for many years so LA was something that was not on the back burner, but I've always was looking at it. And every time I would come out here, which is probably like what, five, six times a year, I would look at a space or two. And and finally a close confidant to me was like, hey, one of my buddies is is working on this project and down near Chinatown. And after I think volume one, we spoke about like a missed opportunity in downtown LA. I I, I took a look at it and this was about three and a half years ago, and it was like Mad Max. Beyond Thunderdome. So it's like basically where Echo Park meets the end of Chinatown. There's a little bridge and it looks- It looks so raw. It's like Escape from New York. Yeah. And I knew like Eric Costin has his barracks near there and there's this cool scene happening down there and a lot of artists. And what I loved most about it right off the bat was this is out of my comfort zone, number one. I don't know exactly what's going to be here, but we're going to have to create a concept that's going to- make people come down here. Well, yeah. And also you had the history of, of neighborhoods rejuvenating pretty quickly. Like where Bestia is, that place yeah. had nothing and all of a sudden became and, and something. I, I mean, we spoke about in Arts the district. Past, past podcast on volume one about Uber changing everything. Yep. And I just remember looking at this being like, this is so raw and it's so full of possibility that this is the kind of thing that I like. I don't know why I have to make things so difficult. For instance, our restaurant in Australia we had to not only open up our first restaurant outside New York City in the Southern Hemisphere, 21 hours away from me, but we opened it up in an area that no one wanted to go to in Sydney called Piermont, which is like this quiet suburb. And then at the time, the Star Casino was the ugliest, worst casino. There was duct tape on the floor. It was crappy. Oh, no. Yeah, it was real bad, but we would have had a good time there. Yeah. And like I took a chance. And then when they redid it, we still chose the worst location in the casino. And I was just like, if we're going to go all the way here, why would we want to have like some things favorable? Let's go all the way because that will make us make the food like that much better because we have to force people. Like one of the things that we've always done at Momofuku is opening up in places that people don't expect you to open up. And we've passed on a lot of places in Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, West Hollywood, Hollywood, because they just didn't feel right. And I wanted to be part of a narrative and something that was a chance. We're already moving in Los Angeles and opening a restaurant. So like might as well like take us way out of our comfort zone. I would have fought you if you opened a place in Beverly Hills. Well, that's so not Changi. I, I, I just, it's, it's just, it's wouldn't a, have been maybe, right. maybe a little bit safer. I By don't the way, know. I, I eat in Beverly Hills all the time. It's just for this. It's just not right. We chose this place on, um, at the time it was 
North Spring and Nod, N-A-U-D. And it just was this abandoned warehouse and uh, looked like a bomb blew up in it because it was completely dilapidated and run down. And there was train tracks. Literally, the backyard is the LA River with no water in it. And it just looked like post-apocalyptic almost. But yet at the same time, there's entry points from various directions that are neighborhoods that it weirdly makes sense for a restaurant to be there. And five years from now, that neighborhood could be totally different. And, And that was the big thing that I was trying to figure out is, and I think I learned that too when we were doing Nishi, was let's not make a concept that's going to make sense for us in the, the next immediate future, like 12 months out. Like food, and not just food, like culture at large is moving at such a rapid pace in terms of what's in, what's hot, what's fashionable, that if you get caught up in the trends, like I think you're doomed. And we wanted to come up with a concept that was going to be, or a location first that you could project five to 10 years out. I don't think locations matter in LA nearly as much as they used to. I think when I moved here and you really could only get from point A to point B by driving the car yourself because there's no cabs, there was such a DUI fear every time you went to dinner. Like you would have to talk about it beforehand. Like, are you driving or am I driving? All right, I'll have one drink. And that's just how you laid it out. And you made your choices based on location and how dangerous it would be when you're driving home, which sounds terrible, but that's the way we thought. And now it's like with Uber and just, people it get just drunk. doesn't matter anymore. People get drunk now. It's the rejuvenation of 40-year-old drunk people is, how, is what's happening. It's we really changed about the parents it. of my school. It's like people go out, they, they'll go dinner, they'll get bombed now. People could not do that 15 years ago. And that was always what LA chefs would complain about New York because they were like, oh, people drink so much more in your restaurants. But now the same chefs that were complaining were like, oh, this is amazing now because ride sharing is fundamentally alter the economics of restaurants. We always joke about there's more mistake kids from the LA when Uber <laughs> took off in LA, more people having third kids than maybe they bargained. So, so yeah, anyway. I'm still nervous about a location because even though I, I feel very good about it, whenever I tell people where it is, like Dave, the greater Dave Cho always says like, who's going to go down there? It's like the worst location possible. So <laughs> I love that he went all in on like, why'd you pick there? Yeah. <laughs> Just pick a normal place. But it was like, you like the degree of difficulty. This is where people don't realize the economics of a restaurant. And when I was younger, I've been lucky to have all these like people that have given me advice. Like, why do you keep on opening up these 20, 40 seat restaurants? I'm like, I don't know, because I want to. And they're like, it's the same amount of work that you're going to have to do for a 150 seat restaurant. Yeah. And I didn't understand that. So the fact that the location size was big, it's a big warehouse. It's about 7,000, 8,000 square feet. So many seats. All in, I think it could be 200, 180. Wow. Which is huge. But the thing is inside, it's only about 70 seats, right? (laughs) Which is good for me, but that's the ideal number. So you can flex it out if you need to. Yes. We're going to have outdoor seating and the private dining room is super important. So if you have all of those in, that's around 200. So Ringer to your anniversary party, you'll be able to accommodate like 180. Huge deposit for Ringer. So that was the problem. And also like so many people in LA, it seems to me still eat at specific times. So you need to have a big restaurant. So our kitchen is massive too, where you can seat as many people as possible at once. I mean, that's the issue. Like we can't just do the tiniest restaurant, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to do a tiny restaurant soon because I love small restaurants. Yeah. But to start off, to build a team that we want, to bring over the people and to hire the talent that we wanted. We need a certain kind of economic structure. And we felt that that space was going to be the best way to facilitate that. We did this riff on my podcast, but we should do it a second time. 
when I mentioned how I've noticed, especially like with ice cream places in LA, these fancy ice cream places that they make them intentionally small so that the line goes out the door. You had this look on your face, like shit, he's giving away (laughs) one of our chef secrets. Like the smaller the place, the more it seems like it's in demand, which makes more people want to go. There's something in our DNA about seeing a queue of people and you just have to like see what it's about. Yeah. And you're like, why would someone wait five hours? Like I just read today that like the line for Howlin' Ray's is five hours today. And I'm like, wow, that's incredibly insane and good for them. But I don't know if I'd wait longer than an hour. So there's something about having it small, but we also knew that because it's out of the way for people, we need to come up with something that people haven't had before, or at least for Momofuku. So we needed to make it experiential in a different way. And most importantly, I think LA as a food culture, they don't want a carpetbagger. They don't want someone from the East Coast saying, oh, this is how it's done. Like, no, man, if I'm a West Coast chef, I'm like, fuck these guys. We don't need them. Our fucking food scene's amazing already. So we have to be good neighbors, not just to our neighborhood, but the culinary community at large. And I really believe that LA will not take a chef that's like not putting in their best effort. But you've learned a couple of things, right? Like you have the big, the big little special private room. Yeah. You might not have known that in 2004, but now you know. Well, hey, now it's I great understand to have a PDR room. is so important in restaurants. People don't understand that. There's two things I learned the hard way. One is why Somalias get paid as much or more than chefs, because that's like instant money for a restaurant. Like no work went involved other than the service of the wine. Yeah. Or cocktails. So you're saying sommeliers are underrated. Sommeliers are so important. Bartenders, the whole beverage movement of a restaurant is something that I have learned the hard way because I didn't think that it mattered as much. But to the profitability of a restaurant, it's super important. Do you need me to come out of retirement like twice a year to bartend? I would love that. That would be hilarious. (laughs) Every Thursdays, once a month, Simmons behind the bar. I want Simmons to make Long Island iced teas. I can open those wine bottles so fast, man. (laughs) Crank them out. So like, I think growing up, I mean, when I heard the ratio for like a fine dining restaurant, you want it 70, 30, 70% of your sales to be food, 30% to be beverage. And obviously if you can have a 50, 50 split, that's the, that's the dream, right? I'll tell you as from a waiter slash bartender perspective, when you have nice bottles of wine <laughs> and you can get that check basically doubled just by, cause somebody ordered a hundred dollar bottle of wine and then they just, they get drunk and then they tip off whatever the final number is, 20%. For that wine bottle, it could be a $125 wine bottle. You're getting $25 just to open it. Yeah. I used to love wine. (laughs) Please have another bottle of Stag Sleep. (laughs) So yeah, that's that's what we're learning. And we have a we're gonna have a pretty extensive wine list. We brought Richard Hargrave to be the SOM, and we have a pretty cool beverage program. But that was the whole idea was like, how do you create a restaurant in terms of space? Because we have to service locals because where we are at right now, it's sort of underserved. There's a few spots. There's this amazing place that I've discovered called the LAXC, which is like a Thai Costco on like steroids. It's the coolest place. What's but it called? LAXC. Hmm. You wouldn't know what to do there. I don't even know what to do there. I, I left there. I, I called it the, the heart of darkness <laughs> because I, I told my wife, I'm like, I'm never coming back. I, I'm going to become Kurtz because like you could just spend a week there because you've never seen half this shit and you don't even know. I spent two hours there and I'd even- Just wandering the aisles? Wandering the aisles being like, what the fuck is this? This is amazing. And I wound up spending like 200 bucks on stuff that I didn't even know what I needed. And it's the type of place that doesn't even bag your groceries. They just put it on a giant cart. And then like, you have to, it's, you just got to go. I mean, I love going to BevMo. So that sounds a hundred <laughs> times more exciting. 
And like, there's all these cool places, but like as a whole, we wanted to do something that is also a restaurant that's going to serve locals. That's going to take care of people that are coming to Dodgers games or, you know, someplace close to like Staples Center. And we know that we're going to have, you know, really rich people. We know we're going to have foodies that need to be like thrilled with the kind of food we need, the ambiance. So this is a weird thing. This big restaurant has to be chopped up to be a restaurant that's a little bit for everyone. So is this a potentially after a Dodger game, you get like a 1030 crowd? I'm thinking before. Before. Before gotcha. and after. Like, okay. So this is the challenge that I told my staff recently. And I know we're talking about getting there, but I was like, man, when are the moments where people in LA leave work early to go from the West side downtown? And those are like Dodgers games at like five o'clock. Yeah. People leave work at like 2.30, 3 o'clock. Our goal long-term, whether we hit it or not, is to be that ambitious to get people to come downtown. Right. And you got the train is relatively close to. Yeah. The trains are right there. Yeah. So that was the whole location of it all. And we were trying to figure out how do we make this, this like community, this hub that can be a little bit of everything for everyone. We're going to take a quick break to talk about ZipRecruiter. Also, is the presenting sponsor of the Bill Simmons podcast. Every business needs great people. And if you're hiring, you need a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. They built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all size trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners on the Dave Chang Show can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Back to Pre-Opening Diaries, Volume 2. Can I ask you a super nerdy question sure. about restaurant equipment? Yeah. Because I'm sure you have like a state-of-the-art kitchen and these things and all the, like, did you hit a point where you were overspending on stuff or you were making mistakes? And what's the balance for you want to have great stuff, but you don't want to have to go too over the top? You know, thankfully, there's two people that have made this process amazing. Sarah Asti and Sam Gelman, like, good Lord, like, I am the worst at designing a kitchen because I will spend... I don't like spending money on anything. I spend money on fly fishing and like going to restaurants. But like when it but comes you to can't kitchen get equipment, cheap with the kitchen. Oh man, I'm the worst. I will spend so much money on shit that you don't even need because like I just lose my mind. I, I don't even understand how to describe it. Like it's got to be this specific kind of bowl, the specific kind of cutting board. Like it's stupid. It makes no no sense in the terms knives, of the, the, everything. Everything has to be a certain thing. I've backed off on this a little bit. Yeah. I've said, okay, we have a certain budget. Let's do what we can with that budget. And again, this infatuation of trying to buy the nicest shit has only recently happened. And it happened when I was in Australia. Because when you're on a casino budget, I said, listen, like if I have to come to Australia, you got to build me the nicest kitchen possible. They built me like a $3 million kitchen. Right. And I was like crazy. So like we have two Maltini ranges and it's like one of the nicest things. And anyway, historically we've always bought affordable stuff and I wanted to get back to like getting it nice Can and we affordable. Can talk about prices? Like how much is it to put together a state-of-the-art kitchen? <laughs> the two Maltini ranges were half a million bucks. Wow. 
Yeah, in Australia. And I didn't want them. I wanted the Atherinol, which is this another thing. It's a great range. I consider it like a like a BMW. Multini would be a Lamborghini, right? I was like, I don't want a Lamborghini. I want like the four-door BMW sedan. That's okay, gonna be now just here's, here's a, you're going to be so amazed that I asked this question, but what the hell is a range? A range is, um, so this is all based on French culinary systems. So a brigade is what would normally fill a big kitchen. So you would have different kinds of cooking on that range. So you would have a meat station, a fish station, poissonier, you'd have entremet, and you would have like a hot apps person or maybe a pasta station. So like when I'm watching Burnt with Bradley Cooper, one of the best movies made of the last 10 years, (laughs) that whole thing they were cooking on in the middle, that's the range. Some people call it a piano, but I don't know anyone that does that. But the traditional French range, it's going to become non-existent in the near future. Gotcha. Because people just don't cook that way anymore. I mean, these ranges were designed because you would normally have a brigade system where you would have a commis, which is basically an intern, and the lowest level would be, um, I'm getting the charcoal or wood to keep this hot, right? And then you would work your way up from there. So you would have like 50 people working a range. Now you don't need that. So that's like a vestige so of the So it's a couple old. hundred thousand at least for no, any, not, any good ways. We don't have a specific range. We're using Jade equipment this time, which is a great, it's a great American range. It's great. Like America makes really great shit. It's just not going to be the beautiful, super ornate stuff that you see in super fancy fine dining kitchens. Right? Or burnt with Bradley Cooper. One Man, of your I, favorites. I, I, I watched that again recently. I know we've spoken about that, but like, I don't... <laughs> I don't what's, fucking understand the cooking What's the single most important staff hire? What is like the first thing you need with a staff? <clears throat> Who's the first person you get? I think it's either the chef or the GM. So people that can help execute the vision. And uh, I was lucky that Jude, for us, I reached out to two people that I knew were in Los Angeles. We've had a lot of people from Momofuku over the years move back to Los Angeles. So we've been able to draw upon that. But the most important thing aren't necessarily the staff or the position. It's people that you can trust that will tell you when you're being an asshole, right? That you're right. like, hey, we need to revisit this. And there's so a high level of accountability. you three people, you have the chef and the GM, and then the three of you figure out the next steps. And it's not even about roles specifically. I actually hate roles in kitchens. Like, yeah. I think it's antiquated. I only think of it, you need three roles in a kitchen. Three roles that, for me, I've always seen, I always base it on like the Holy Trinity. You need someone that makes miracles happen, right? The reason why cooks or servers are there because they can learn something that they couldn't do anywhere else. Two is you need the bad cop, the drill sergeant to enforce, you know, how to make these dishes or to enforce the decorum or the culture. And you need the good cop to make the bad cop not look so bad. Right. And is that Chen? <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes this role can be filled by multiple people. Right. So that's really what I was looking for. I was looking for someone that can like come up with insane ideas Yeah. to the person that can enforce the culture and the standards of what's right and wrong. And the other person that can almost be like, hey, I mean, everything's going to be okay. I found that sometimes that can be one person, right? What about liquor license? I was, that always seems to be a holdup for so many restaurants. We're still going through the permitting. Um, I mean, LA is so difficult to open up a restaurant. New York is extraordinarily difficult. They're just equally difficult in different ways. You know, someone recently told me this because it was Roy, right? So Roy Choi is one of my close friends and him and the whole team at the Line Hotel have like housed us for the past month and a half, allowing us to do R&D and to have a place where we can like build that teamwork and camaraderie. But Roy was like, you know, because I was bitching about 
permitting and everything. And I was like, listen, like LA is probably the best place when you're first trying to start out to open up a restaurant. If you're small, right. They're going to look the other way. If you're trying to like start something from scratch, but they're going to come down on you pretty hard. If you are an established business or you're going to try to do something at scale, really huge and large. And there's just a lot of bureaucratic stuff that we've had to do, but LA has been really good. Like it just, we haven't had difficulties other than it just takes a long time. All right. So let's go to the menu then. Yeah. So at some point you have to start thinking about creative choices for this restaurant. You have yeah. the location. Yeah. You have I mean, the giant range that I didn't even know what it was called until 10 I didn't minutes realize ago. I called it the range. We have a massive kitchen. You start putting together staff, but at some point you so, have the onus of this restaurant has to have great food and stand out in some way. So, I mean, we're going to talk more about the food, but the food more or less, it's still hard for me to describe. It's been evolving and changing. So where do you start? But what's step one of that process in your head? What is something that people would come and eat that will go out of their way to eat? And I think to me, it was a place that was going to highlight again, the market that you can get here at Santa Monica and obviously the amazing produce. And then other thing is like, people think that people in LA, I feel like eat super healthy, but that's not always the case. Nah. No, they'll cheat. Completely a misconception. Yeah. People eat a lot of meat here. It's yeah. really more of a steakhouse type of town. The problem is they don't eat heavy lunches. I think no is, lunches. is the LA difference. But dinner, yes, they'll eat. So part of it is like, okay, we got to do something that's I wouldn't say meat oriented. And I've had a hard time trying to describe what that food is still going to be because I feel like like Nishi is a very different restaurant now than when we opened up, but it was an incomplete version. And how we executed it, how we spoke about it, I came across as a total jackass. And I spoke about it too much, and there was no sense of discovery. You were like a movie actor who did too many interviews about the movie and what was in it. And then I felt like I didn't need to see the movie. Yeah, I was just, I should just shut up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, we have this podcast about this every dish in the restaurant. (laughs) We should have thought this over. But I, I didn't do it in a way that was, I think, constructive. I just, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think podcast is good for me because there's just a lot more to no, explain. This, I actually think this will help the restaurant. Um, do you feel like because you're Korean, people expect the restaurant to have at least an Asian bent? Well, it's definitely going to be because the older I've gotten, the more I've accepted the fact that my skin color is not going to change. Right? Yeah. I'm more comfortable being Korean than I've ever have in my entire life. I am too. <laughs> So part of it is, the strange thing is many people come up to me and they're like, I don't even like your food, but I really want you to do well because we don't have a lot of like people that are Asian, Korean, doesn't matter, that are in the spotlight, that are pushing culture forward a little bit. I don't like being typecast as Asian. I've worked my entire career to not make Korean food. Yeah. Even though people say, oh, you make Korean food. I think it's always been a little bit more Japanese, a little bit more of the American South, a lot of French, whatever. It's been this hodgepodge of stuff. So initially, I think it was to do a lot of Korean food and not to say that it's Korean because they were not doing Korean food. And this is where it gets hard because I can't make a facsimile. You have some of the best Korean restaurants in the world in Koreatown here. Yeah. So you can't just say, oh, I'm making Korean food. That's disrespectful to everything. But simultaneously, if I say I'm Korean or I'm making Asian food, but with French ingredients, they're going to say, oh, that's fusion. But if I'm a French chef saying... I'm making French food, but we have some Asian ingredients. They're going to be like, oh, that's cool and that's sexy. That's not as considered fusion. What's the balance between repeating dishes that you know already worked and creating new dishes that nobody tried yet? Well, everything's been done already in food. That's the most important thing to understand. Nothing is new. I don't know. The Sun Don, your version of that, I, I can't no. imagine that exists. 
but that's my mom's more or less, right? Okay. I'm excited that Cobby Gym Korean Brace Short Ribs is a thing now because I've always struggled my entire career, my culinary career, like my final project in cooking school was Brace Short Ribs, Korean Brace Short Ribs. The most elevated version of that we did at Co. when we did a deep fried short rib that been the same flavor. Oh, that sounds delicious. And it's delicious because you cook it 48 hours when the collagen and, and the muscle fibers break down, the short rib almost turns into like a juicy New York strip. And to see that like, oh, like Sunundong just serves this gnarly looking bowl of braised short ribs and people love it. I was like, oh, like people like this shit. Yeah. And it's not just me. It's it's the validation that like, I'm not crazy. My family's food isn't fucking crazy. It's actually delicious. Not just my family, like Korean culture at large makes delicious food. And it sounds crazy as a 40 year old, like Korean American to finally have that ability to be like, oh, I don't have to be embarrassed about the food that I grew up eating. Yeah. In the scheme of like, Asian food, like it's something that is as complex and as delicious as you might find in China or Japan. One of the things you're passionate about is, you know, like with pizza, why do people think Italians make the best pizza? The best pizza could come from anywhere. And that the reinvention of people's stereotypes about food seems to be important to you. Yes. And a lot of it is because I just grew up not having the acceptance that I wanted. And for lack of a better expression, if I can connect the dots, I feel like I've used food to talk about things that you couldn't talk about because food is always seen as this sort of harmless little thing. And yeah, if someone can eat something delicious, maybe that's one way to break down the barriers in like looking down on another culture or another person. Like more than anything, what gets me like super going is to just get acceptance by everyone. I genuinely don't believe you know, it's funny, like I've barely learned anything in college, but I remember certain things quite well. And I seem to have adopted this culinary version of uh, this uh, famous UCLA professor, I don't even know if he's still alive, Jared Diamond, who wrote Gun Germs and Steel, which not to go too deep down in that rabbit hole, but basically it's like, hey, we're all the same. Everyone wants to eat delicious food. Culturally speaking, like you may not understand what we're doing, but like doesn't mean that you should take a shit on it, right? Like there's a lot of similarities. And I think that if you look at a lot of dishes, there's a lot of overlaps. You just, you have to have an open mind. Two menu questions. One yeah. is, can you have too many things on a menu? We've talked yes, about this yes. before, but how did that factor into your process with this? And then second, do you just dump dessert and get people to get the fuck out after they finish Well, no, dinner? we're going to do dessert. Okay. and Because um, dessert and coffee, not high profit margins. Coffee is now. I missed the boat on coffee completely because I just don't drink it. Oh, so you um, get fancy coffee charged like $10 a cup? <laughs> no, I'm I just I'm too wired in, in general, right? So coffee, no. And um, the menu is, that's the real debate. Because it's like the Mike Lombardi theory on Ben McAdoo's playbook for the Giants. That's like 20 pages long. And it's like, just pick seven plays you do well. Right. You got to edit. Like, again, like I love that Paul Thomas Anderson thing. Like when he was talking about Magnolia, like sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes you're so in it that you lose sleep because all you want to do is to make it more sensible and more clear, but you can't do it. Sometimes a man, you can get crazy because it's not like you want it that way, but you get so wrapped up in it that you don't know what else to do, but to like make it bigger sometimes. Right? Yeah. And that's where we're at. And part of my fear of making the menu concise or trying to make it concise is that we wanted to make it sensible to the people that are dining there. We don't want this to be this potpourri of shit where you look at this menu like, oh, we have meat over here, fish, vegetables from all over the world. Like, we don't want that. I don't want that. I want people to feel like, oh, I understand what's happening here. So that has a lot to do 
with the amount of items you have on the menu. I know there's no right answer to this, but what's like the perfect number? Appetizers, entrees, sides. Should it all be something I can see on one page? Like, for instance, I was at Langer's recently, and I don't understand how Jewish jellies can have 100 items on a menu. It's just like so crazy. Makes me me nervous. Makes me nervous too. I always tell my kids, like, stay if we're at a deli, like, don't get spaghetti and meatballs. Like, they're not making, they're making sandwiches (laughs) and stick to that. But there can be too much, right? And I think it's hard to edit. It's not even just menu items per se, it's where you're getting those ingredients from. Like, it's one of the hardest things for a chef is to put a governor on yourself. So I think. It's really important to put blinders on and to creatively limit yourself. So one of the things we're focusing on is just doing American ingredients and just focusing on California stuff. Mm. Because I can get sea urchin from anywhere in the world, from Maine to Hokkaido, but we're only going to want to use Santa Barbara. Not that that's a novel. Many great restaurants here use it, but I'm fatuated with rock crabs and box crabs and amazing crabs that are of the California region. Mm. Like Yellowtail is here. It's delicious. Even the fruits and vegetables, you have chamora and you have the crazy New Zealand pineapple guava thing and just sort of limiting yourself to what you can do because I'm not going to import stuff from Italy. Yeah. Right? Like, why would you when you have the, the so much here? So Tomatoes? Tomatoes here, yeah. Truffles? No truffles. But here's the thing. Maybe we'll use truffles. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll use truffles. I want to say that's the the overriding thesis, right? Like we will get other stuff. It's not going to be so cut and dry, but our focus is to limit ourselves. And by limiting yourself, hopefully you're going to limit the menu. And on top of all of that, you have to limit yourself in terms of what a cook can actually execute. So in a kitchen, let's say it's 50 to 70 seats and you have six cooks in a kitchen. So traditionally in a kitchen, like a traditional, traditional kitchen, you have grand manger. You might have two people working out. Usually one, at least one, obviously. Sometimes two if it's a big grand manger station. They're doing the cold apps, the terrines, the salads, a lot of the raw fish. Maybe the second grand manger person is also doing hot apps. It's, it's like a soccer formation, right? You can change it a variety of ways. And then you have someone that's maybe doing pasta or entremet, vegetables, fish station, meat station, and you have dessert. So like six to eight people. And then you have a chef that's like expediting and and making sure all of it's happening, maybe a sous chef. But ultimately, each cook can only be responsible, in my opinion, four to six dishes per person. Is there anything you cross off because the dish is so complicated it's not worth the manpower? Well, that's another thing. That's a good question. You want to make dishes that people can execute. Replicable, executable dishes. And that's my biggest pet peeve when like I see a, someone I've promoted to be a chef or a sous chef and they put something on the menu and it's delicious and it's super fucking cool, but only they can execute it. I'm like, so what's the point? Right. Like, our job is to make everyone as successful as possible. Why would you want to set them up for failure by making them a dish that they can't do? And I think a lot of that actually comes with age. Like I remember looking at some of my earlier dishes where I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Because it was so hard to do. The only thing that it was good for was making my ego bigger. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You could do the dish that nobody else could do. And that's stupid. Vaulted you. In a kitchen, this is another pet peeve of mine. I don't understand why anyone makes anything, not even a dish, but anything in a restaurant that they scenario it out under best case situations. Right. It never fucking happens. I mean, you've worked in a, as a bartender. It's like, when did you have a day where everything went 
according to plan. It never happens. There's always shit that goes wrong. You know, the gas might be out. The fish guy shows right. up late. Your cook cut himself is in the hospital. Like every day you have to deal with the stupidest shit. Hey, we're taking one more break. If you're a fan of podcasts, you've no doubt heard countless mattress ads, a bed in a box that ships right to your door. Well, get this. A group of furniture and bedding experts got together a couple years ago and decided to do something really unique, create a mattress that's actually good. Pangea Bed is a copper-infused mattress with the highest ratings of any mattress sold online. Pangea Bed took the mattress in a box concept, took it to the next level. They sent Dave a mattress. He loved it. The only way he would have loved it more is if they had covered it in crawfish, but he loved it anyway. Shop online at www.pangeabed.com to get a mattress built by people who really care about your sleep. The mattress will be shipped right to your front door for free. You can sleep on it for 100 days risk-free. Visit pangeabed.com. Use coupon code CHANG for an additional $100 off the current promotion. And enter coupon code CHANK to get $200 off any mattress purchase. The biggest discount available on Pangea Bed. Again, pangeabed.com. And now back to the Pre-Opening Diaries, Volume 2 with Dave Chang. I have one more menu. This is a good menu question. Chen, you might have to pay attention for the first time in 20 minutes for this one. Everybody is so psychotic now about I'm gluten-free, I can't eat this, I do, is there butter in that? Let's deal with the gluten-free thing first because mm. that's taken off in the last five years. Do you even worry about that? Do you think about like, oh, I have two gluten-free dishes that will suck people in? Uh, yes, we're actually going to go, I think, a lot on the bread. One thing I do know is we're going to probably be serving a lot of Bing bread. We're not going to do any steamed buns, Okay. right? So if you pan fry, griddle, or bake a bun, a bao, it's called a Bing. It's the same recipe. Yeah. And Koreans have it and this thing called hot dog, which is a stuffed pancake. So we're going to serve it in a way that is familiar, but not that familiar. But I bring this up to the whole gluten-free thing. We've had this big argument like, hey, do we need to make a gluten alternative? And I said, no. Maybe we will. We'll get there. But we're You're only going to put on the free protesters outside. <laughs> we're going to put it on the menu if and when we're able to develop a recipe that's as good as anything else that's out there. Couldn't you make like a rice-based rice something? We'll get there. There's going to be other things that someone that's warning, allergic- LA is very precious. <laughs> we're going to get there. I'm not saying no, but right now we're so focused on everything else that this is the problem. Maybe a restaurant in the future, when we're better at this, we're going to have already all these recipes for the allergy grid. But right now we don't have that much. We have a lot of vegan and a lot of vegetarian substitutes but not so much for the gluten-free. So here's the problem. I put my foot in my mouth in an article a few years ago because I was making fun of people that had allergies because you see this in restaurants. Yeah. People that have actual real food allergies that you don't want to fuck with. My wife, allergic to shellfish. Right. You don't want to fuck around with that. That is super serious. But then you have people that just make up shit. Yeah. Because, oh, I don't like how that looks. I'm just going to tell them I'm allergic to this. Right. Or it happens a lot. And this is where I, I wish I could have gone back in time and said, no, there are people that have serious allergies and there's some people that think that they have serious allergies, but they're just being a pain in the ass. And I've seen this a lot. I know other people, other restaurants, but maybe they won't say it because they don't want to get in trouble. Oh, I'm, I can't eat dairy, but they're eating fucking ice cream at the end of the meal. I'm like, fuck you guys. I hope you burn in hell. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck kind of person says I can't eat dairy, but they're crushing ice cream? That's like when I have... <laughs> 
chicken parmesan and then asks for the gluten-free penne. And the yeah. waitress just stares at me confused. Yeah. She's like, you know the chicken parmesan has breadcrumbs. I'm like, oh. Do you know I just what don't a, like. You know what a, yeah, people it makes are the weird. Kitchen, makes the kitchen go fucking insane. <laughs> I should probably stop doing that. <laughs> right? Like, probably spit we my... want our best to like make the best food for you, but like you can't just like give us the most ridiculous requests. And no, by and large, the people that have real allergies. I apologize profusely for lumping them in with the fucking people that you burn in. The out. conditional allergies. Yes. Right. Or like, I see this a lot in open kitchen. We have a lot of open kitchen restaurants and especially like a tasting menu. And like, they're looking at the table to the left or right and they're getting a dish. They're like, oh, that has uni. Oh yeah, I can't eat uni. And then you're like, well, we're about to plate your fucking course now. Yeah. Like, and now you're telling us you can't eat uni. Right. And you have to be like, we're in the hospitality but it's like, Oh shit, shame on us. We're a shitty restaurant. Like we don't have anything ready, but like we would absolutely prepare something for you given ample time. And we try our best to tell everyone, "Hey, like do you have any allergies or whatever, whatever?" And oftentimes it doesn't work. I'm gluten-free, but can I have the chocolate cake? Yeah, can't do that. So you just come out with a knife at that point. Tell uh, them to leave. I don't know why I get so upset, but you know, people well, you they can like do liars. whatever they want. I don't like liars. Um <laughs> But they're not the worst. The worst thing is, what you know, these are all things that we've discussed. Like, do we do prepay reservations? What kind of reservations do we do? And if they do, like, how do you prevent them from no calling, no showing? Because that's the worst thing you can do to a restaurant. As someone that's listening, don't fucking make five reservations on a night and no show for four of them. Right. Because restaurant margins are notoriously thin, thinner now than ever before. And if a table for four chooses not to show up, that could be the difference between a profitable night and a so loss. So you do the deposits for it, right? We don't do that. I mean, I wish we Seems could. Seems like you could. Like if I cancel on the uh, wonderful lady who cuts my hair six hours before the haircut, I pay for the haircut because that's But there's the something rule. about a restaurant where people are still like, fuck them. As a whole, people treat people in the restaurant industry like total fucking shit. We're like servants. Chen, think about the prepay reservations. $100 <laughs> down. Like when you go to Japan- that whole culture as a whole, they don't want to feed people from America. Yeah. You know why? They don't show up for fucking reservations. Oh. They're disrespectful. And as a culture, Japan is about honor and truth and like committing to your word you give to someone. And you have restaurants that take out seats because they're like six people is too many. We have to only do five. Right? It's crazy. And oftentimes these are restaurants where you make a year, two years in advance. And they don't call you the day before like they do in America to be like, hey, Mr. Simmons, just to remind you about your reservation tomorrow. Yeah. They won't do that. They just expect you to show up. You have no honor. And if you don't show up, you fuck them. What do you do about Postmates and Caviar? How do you handle that? Is that a decision before you even open the restaurant? I haven't even thought about that yet. Can you make it so that you can't pick up food from the restaurant? Because Well, like, for instance, you know, I've done pretty deep. I invested in Maple to do delivery, which failed. I don't know again why. And we're doing Ondo, which had its up and downs. No one's cracked the code on food delivery yet, in my opinion. Ultimately, I think it's Amazon. But the reason why Postmates, I bring it up and you bring it up is, I spoke to Bastion about this a few years ago. He's the CEO of Postmates. I'm like, why are you offering the ability to buy melted cheese from any restaurant? Yeah. It's going to get to your house like shit. They need to edit what you can actually deliver really well. Versus not, right? Like tacos don't deliver well. So is it worth it for you? Like say you get a $200 Postmates order. Those people now aren't sitting in the restaurant. Oh, it's a, it's They're a not taking thing. up a it's table. It's a different time. On the timing is everything. And you see this on Postmates. If you try to order something from Postmates or any kind of 
delivery service, your orders from seven o'clock to nine o'clock or six thirty to nine o'clock might take forever. Yeah. Because guess what? They don't give a fuck about you unless you're only doing to go orders. You have to take care of the people that are in the dining room. Right. So if you're going to order Postmates, I think the to, the hack is do it at like five o'clock, six o'clock, or do it after nine thirty after their dinner rush. I'm a big five thirty one Postmates order. Yeah. Restaurant opens at five thirty. Boom. That's what you should do. Problem is with Postmates too is they'll just deliver even if you don't offer delivery from a place. I don't know. I think they're getting a lot better at it because now they just say it's not available at this time. And and listen, I, if people want to support the restaurant, great. But for a long time. As a rule of thumb, we never offer delivery at any of our restaurants, even though we do it now at all of our restaurants, for the exception of Co, because the food didn't travel well. And I don't want someone to write a review about us because they had a shitty meal because they're eating their boxes, watching ESPN, and the food was cold. I think we've reached a point in time where I tell you that I had the Castle's patty melt postmated. <laughs> and guess what happened? Wasn't good. Yeah. The medium rare suddenly was medium well by the time it got to my house because the the meat it's naturally not cooked for another- fault and the, the guys no. at Cassell's. It's not. I was That's mad your at myself. Fault. It's your I, fault. No, it was 100% <laughs> my fault. And I was really upset at myself that I disgraced this wonderful patty melt that should have been eaten by another human being. So again, if I had to rank the foods you should order delivered, number one is pizza. Travel is better than anything else, but not Neapolitan style. So don't write a shitty Yelp review if you're like, oh, I got Neapolitan pie, but it sucks and it was too soupy. No, you got to eat a Neapolitan pie in the store. Don't order that delivery. Don't, you know, there's so many pet peeves. I won't even go down this list. Pasta delivery Or sushi, right? Like like a really good sushi place that is not at the counter. But you can't have delivered nigiri. It just doesn't make any sense to me. No. And by the way, I've done it many times. It's the, fine, the, the, but yeah, I mean, if you do the maki Izakaya, rolls. we did sugar fish, and sushi has about a half hour shelf life. One day we're going to have to just talk specifically about sugar fish. I'm not going to make many friends. <laughs> People like it out here. I know, I don't get it. Yeah. It makes me so upset. It's it's very, the packaging is great. It's, um, it's, it's their state. other one in New York, they, they just do the rolls is really great. I the like execution that a lot. of sugar fish from start to finish is just really maybe, smart. Maybe I'm just jealous of their success. They give you three choices. They do it the same way every time. You have no say in it, and they get you the hell out. What Eat if you, the sushi and leave. Being Italian-American yourself, yeah. what if you heard that everyone in a certain part of America, let's just say it's California, let's just say it's California, everyone thought the best Italian food was Olive Garden. Like, wait, that's not chicken parm. Don't yeah. define my food by something like this. Again, I don't like talking about it because you come, come around as the worst food snob possible. But I want people to eat real good sushi. I just don't think they know what it... Once they taste it, they're going to be like, oh my God. Is sushi something you would mess around with this new restaurant? No, that's out. Too hard. Pokey? Mm, We might do a chirashi, but on the great Joe House podcast, I made it known how much I dislike poke outside of Hawaii. It was great. (laughs) The two things I learned in 2017 food-wise was don't eat pokey from a fast food pokey place and don't drink Tito's. Julia Lippman's theory. (laughs) That Tito's is actually sweeter and makes you more hungover. And I realized like every time I had Tito's, I was hungover. Tito's so is great, smart. It's a great American product though. I, I went back to the, the classics and not the same hangover the next day. Yeah, there you go. So, Sorry, no. Tito's. We had a great run. <laughs> but this whole Postmates thing, we don't know what's going to happen there. Food delivery as a whole, not sure. But I don't think you should judge a restaurant by how it delivers well. That's it for volume two. Volume three will be coming out soon. It's so, on the menu. No pun intended. No pun. Yeah. <laughs> He's really good at this. Yeah.